Welcome to The Razor's Edge, an investing podcast. My name is Daniel Schwartzman, and I'm one of your hosts, along with Akram's Razor. The Razor's Edge covers the stock market and related topics, including deep dive interviews with guests, free-flowing conversations about investing themes that we are interested in, and more. We're bringing over 30 years of combined experience in markets, including Akram's extensive professional investing career and my decade-plus in financial media. Subscribe to this podcast wherever you get podcasts. Follow us on Twitter or threads. Check out Akram's newsletter, The Razor's Edge, at the-razors-edge.ghost.io. Check out my RIA website at middlecoastinvesting.com. The views and ideas discussed on this podcast are our own or our guests when we have them. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice of any sort. We may and usually do discuss stocks that we hold in our portfolios, long or short, on a given episode. We won't disclose those positions individually, and whatever you hear here, you should do your own research or speak with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions. Hi there. Here's the second episode this week. We recorded this on Sunday as well. We're going to jump right into talking about stocks based in China and about investing in China in general. And then we're going to get into Boeing and investing in it right now. We recorded this on Sunday, just like we did the first episode. So this was before news of Jack Ma and Joe Tsai buying shares in Alibaba, which sent Alibaba and other stocks based in China higher. It's also before whatever news has come out about Boeing and the different parts of the plane that are falling off in different airports around the country, world, who knows. So just keep that in mind and enjoy. So China was, you posted something this week, which was in response. I wasn't, you said you saw a few things. I, I think it came out actually after you posted it. I saw something from a guy I like, and I've probably mentioned before, George Lovatis of Upslope on, he was just making, not quite, I, I don't want to say moral case, but just sort of China is, you just can't put your money there given its relationship to the U.S. and so on. Alibaba, which we've brought up. From That's, is that moral or is that political? Because there's the, there's one guy on the, the internet who makes a case about, you know, how, how, in, how India is great and how China is not because of how they treat the, what is it? The Muslims in Uyghur. Right. Which, <laughs> which yeah. is, you know, the Muslim population of a, India isn't having a, it's not, the they're most, not having a good time, Daniel. Most comforting, <laughs> most comforting time for minorities in <laughs> India either. Not to speak too broadly, but just. Yes, but they're, they're really not really like, you know, when 200, 200 million is not exactly a minority. It's the question of what is a minority, right? Right. Well, well at, at this point, 200 million on 1.5 billion is a minority. But is it the same as, you know, a couple million on 1.5 billion? So whose mistreatment is more relevant and what the degrees of mistreatment, right? Because one is kind of like, you know, there's definitely tension, particularly in the North. And there's a geopolitical thing that's gone on for a while versus kind of just uh, the separatist movement and the concentration, quote, camps degree that it's gotten to in terms of dealing the Chinese have had to deal with the the Uyghurs. If we use, if we go back to stocks with this, and specifically Baba is the simplest one because I, I yes, think there's a there's a there's an American take 
that is like, hey, as an American, also the Taiwan part too, right? Which is, it's unholy. It's un, it's un-American, undemocratic to own these stocks. Which is also kind of really interesting when you think about economics, because, I mean, China is, you know, an $18 trillion economy, right? India is like three, you know? Like, I get it. You want to talk your book, you're long India. And, you know, India, you're coming off a low base. There's more upside, right? And if you've made investments there, anything that is going to China from a manufacturing standpoint, that you can now relocate some to India is obviously beneficial. But I mean, at the end of the day, if you're a technology person and you look at like, I mean, I, I, where I have a problem is when people start downplaying, like what, let's just say, I mean, if you see some of the stuff the Chinese have accomplished from a tech standpoint, it is pretty impressive, right? And just in the nature of their applications, their cities, their infrastructure, their EVs, right? I mean, if you want to look at it, like who's the global leader in electric vehicle technology? It's the Chinese, <laughs> you know, like it's not even debatable. So their battery tech, a lot of the things that they've been focusing on. And I mean, I get it. I mean, there's like a threatening element to it. But like, does that have a place in the stock market game? Right? Like, what are you like trying to argue? Because let me tell you, it's not going to be a good equation if the world's second largest economy gets decimated. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed how badly luxury stocks have been trading. Right? Yeah. Like, that's an, that's an interesting area of note. Because I mean, you know, the Chinese consumer matters. It was a huge right. part of that bull thesis, yeah, for LVMH yeah, or like whatever they're, else. They're like a they're like a quarter, they're a quarter of uh, you know Apple's business now, right? And like, let's not forget for all these guys who are like, we love Meta, we love Meta. Look at what look how much money you could have made, you know? No better investment. Like, uh, what? Where did sixty five percent of Meta's advertising revenue come from in the last twelve months? China. What are you talking about, dude? Go look at it. It's insane. It is insane. And it's, you know, it was broken out. uh, The Timu phenomenon. So you can even say maybe it's even more, right? Because of the auction functionality and what it's done to the overall inventory to bring someone in bidding so much. But Timu, TikTok, Shine, Shop. Shine, these things, uh, you know, Facebook, uh, on its last report, you know, you could, it's like, it sticks out like a sore thumb, how much, if there's been one surprise really over the last year, you know, beyond the, uh, I guess you could say like the overall market. There's also, by the way, there's a whole bull thesis that like where you want to be because of generative AI, right? Uh, and the ability to drive production costs of high value content, whether it be video commercials or ads or whatever, down to almost zero is what? Is the one who controls the real estate. So add real estate, high value ad real estate, whether like if you think about the world as, you know, billboards in Times Square, right? And we go to the digital version of that, which has been, I guess, Instagram. Uh, 
they're in good they're in they're in a very good spot. But um, what you're what you're sort of implying there, and I think you mentioned this in your piece too, you wrote about this, is if right now, you know, Alibaba was at above 300 in 2020, it is now at 60, just under 70 bucks a share. So and it's all right. So let's just start at the beginning of this because we got this has been discombobulated. Uh, I thought Netflix was cheap at pretty much rock bottom. I wrote why. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was busy with the Twitter uh, uh, trade. Twitter, yeah. Yes. We did all the stuff on that. Uh, you know, obviously my predictions on free cash flow proved like, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, Nostradamusque. You know, so like relative to consensus and to have written a thesis outlining why and then seeing how it turned out, you know, 18 months later. So it's, it's nice to look back on it. Uh, but I mean, it's not something I made money on. Uh, Meta, same thing. Right. We went through it that day, you know, trading it, uh, getting, you know, being like, I'm not going to sell it. I said, I buy it and I will not touch it. Right. For nine months. Uh, and then you're like, oh, oh look at this. Do you see the headline print? And you're like, I'm going to get out. And then it falls another 20% after you get out. And you're like, I'm so good at this, you know? And then you listen to the conference call and you're like, wait, should I buy it back now? And you're like, what am I day trading here? What am I doing? You know? Uh, and then the stock is 4X from there. Right. And, and that's when the people now remember the 2022 market was a bear market right? Nobody had confidence in anything. So in general, taking risk was harder. Okay. Uh, Because the bluest of the blue chips were struggling. Okay. So there's that, that, there's an important distinction there when people are like, this is not like buying Facebook, you know, uh, at 200 billion enterprise value, you know, it got, of course it's not, by the way, like the, the level that Facebook got cheap on and the way it's assessed and the confidence we have in those things was pretty much unprecedented, right? Uh, well, not really. Microsoft got that cheap in many things in the, in the past. But uh, in recent actually, years for that, it's funny know. because I was actually sending uh, my old downfall video about when Balmer bought Nokia just the other day uh, to somebody because we were having a conversation over it. But uh, yeah, in terms of recent things, Meta is the most clear example. But the point where I get annoyed is that the genesis of the Baba trade, right? Because I don't care about politics. I understand the political equation. I'm just pointing out the hypocrisy, right? People are willing to trade anything on earth, right? So it gets really annoying when they try to single out and say, oh, you know, morally or culturally, right? Like they have an aversion to like, you're willing to trade meme stocks. You're willing to trade crypto nonsense. You're willing to trade all kinds of garbage, right? So like the China thing with the second largest economy and how intertwined they will remain, no matter what is going to happen. I mean, we're obviously, you know, there's more tension between the two and there has been for the last five years. And it's not like before where everyone was like, the China miracle, and we love it. But that was not what the Alibaba trade was, right? The Alibaba trade was like, by July, a couple things had changed. One, 
I already made 50% in Amazon. I already missed, you know, the 300% in Meta, right? I've already watched <laughs> Netflix go up 150%. So when people are like, there are way easier ways to make, I'm like, please tell me, buddy. You know, right? Like, what do you, what do you want me to do? I mean, I understand you could, you, we could have ridden ship momentum, but like, that's a whole different story, right? And of course, there's been some really fantastic trades where you do specific work and like, you're like, this is what's been, the software stuff you could argue. There's been all kinds of things, but I'm saying mega caps, right? I think I want to passively own something that like, I have a, like, you know, that it has to turn out to be a fraud or like a GE type situation or something, you know, really bad, right? For, for me to get it wrong when I buy it at a 25% free cash flow yield, right? So, and like, who, who, who sticks out there? Yeah, Alibaba. Well, what interested me about Baba beyond that was the timing, right? So you're like, okay, now it looks like the Chinese economy is due for some stimulus. By the way, this has been totally wrong on a thesis standpoint. Right. And I would call this like the lazy man element on, on my end. There's been two lazy man elements, I'd say. And I paid for that. I mean, I lost a good chunk of change. Um, on calls in that window. Okay. This is dating to last summer. This Six is July, July to August of 2023. So I bought calls. The stock was 88. It went to like 104. And I held them all the way right back down. I was a double on a very large position. And it ended up being zero. And that was like, and they reported a good earnings. But what stood out with them is like, you know, they're paying a dividend, they're doing the buyback, they were spinning everything off, right? Like they had they had now adopted, I would say, let's call it a, a much more shareholder friendly. Um uh but I don't want to say like I mean part of it's capital structure, but I'm saying organizational structure and it's like strategic focus going forward, right? They're like, we're no longer gonna be like kind of a supermarket of investing. Right in everything, because we're a giant. So we're gonna we're gonna split into these divisions. The core e-commerce business generates like twenty five billion or whatever in free cash flow. Everybody else, they're competing for capital, right? Both internally and externally from the capital markets, right? And we will exit non-strategic assets, you know, and we'll boost the buyback, and we'll pay a dividend. Like that's like what you want to hear, particularly in a, in a market where there's like a lot of, there's a lot of stuff related transaction party wise that is just, you know, so egregious that at times you're just like, this is just criminal, right? So you have that going and you have kind of the prospects of, uh, of a stimulus package, you know, at the macro level, which has not turned out to happen. So, so far, but on the flip side, it seems that them and JD and just everybody kind of in commerce, it's a cutthroat market over there, right? In Asia, right? The, the, the PDD example really is one where PDD has come in uh, and shine to a lesser extent, but like you, you actually have to ask yourself if those two companies are sustainable with what they're doing. Right. That's the other thing. Right. But they've really been the new flavor capital markets wise. 
and they've been getting actually a multiple and they've been disruptive to the valuations of, you know, let's call it the incumbent giants. And then there's the whole shit around AI, right? Like Alibaba is the leader in, in cloud market share. And I mean, they were going to spin off the cloud business and, you know, you can't get your GPUs. There's, well, there's those restrictions, put it that way. And like what's going to happen, what's going to play out there. But yeah, so let's just say like it was a thesis that was predicated on uh, not, it wasn't like meta and being like at an absolute level, it's amazing. It was like now after everything in the West has rallied, plus all these things, the risk reward to me is appealing, right? At $88. And where is it now, by the way? It's 70 bucks, right? So not exactly like if you're buying something like this and you think the asset could be worth 50% to 100% more over two years, all right, you don't really care about the fact that it's dropped this much, you know? Like, I mean, yes, if for a trade, it's different. Like you already lost in the trade in the, in the summer, right? But like the trade was also secondary to like, hey, I want to take an investing view here, you know, on something that is not active, right? And you, you're putting this in a, in a category like this because like, like you don't want it, like uh, uh, people who invest don't feel like they need to do every single investment needs to be seven months on one project, right? Like uh, even a couple months, like there's some things where you just want to be like, all right, it's a given. I'm not going to add too much more to this. Uh, here's what's mattering. And you're not going to be able to time it, right? And I could get it wrong, right? Competitively, maybe they start, they continue to lose share. Maybe it gets worse. Maybe this, maybe this does turn into the BlackBerry of e-commerce, you know, right? Like, who knows? Highly unlikely when you think, when you think about the way the business works, but who knows? You, there's always that small probability, particularly with the competition. But from where you're looking at it, assuming that's not the case, because let's be honest, if that thing turns out to be a fraud and everything else is, and let's say the cash isn't real for half these companies, right? Like you're going to have, they've already been hit hard. You're going to have the real consequential damage that's going to follow is going to be more macroeconomic. You know? Well, and I think that's, what's the, the more compelling and interesting point even is just how you made, you said, you mentioned Meta's reliance on China Apple's reliance on China, like if there's ignoring Chinese stocks does not mean you're not exposed to China and there's ways to not be exposed to China, I suppose, but it's pretty tough given how big a part it is. Of it's the been pretty economy. tough, Daniel, for thousands of years. <laughs> fair, fair. Yeah. Okay. Haven't I reviewed mean, the like... Ming or the Han dynasty and the... Yeah. The investing you know, opportunities like, at the time, but yeah. Unfortunately, people forget that like there's there's been a trading relationship uh, that like you know as much as we are in this uh, nationalistic bent globally, it is still a global economy. So, you know the the waves of anti-immigration all over Earth and the rise of nationalism in every almost single geography. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, 
I mean, how many billionaires do I have to read uh, tweeting about how they're enamored with the with the Argentina's president's speech? You know, jeez, oh, uh, at uh, at uh, at Davos, and they're like, "Oh, this is so beautiful." It's like, "Oh, right, what a what a what a surprise that uh, literally regurgitating every single thing that Milton Friedman." And Rothbard have been saying, but because it's coming out of a guy who's president of a country, right, that that went through its own high pressure Chicago boys experiment before it went, you know, super lefty. Right. Uh, and has struggled over time because of that, uh, you know, being like, oh, this guy gets it more than anybody with politicians were just like him. Like, please walk me through how you're going to replace the dollar. Sorry, the peso with the dollar. <laughs> you know, it's nice to say it in principle. It's like, hey, let's just get rid of our, our disastrous monetary policy, which we've just not been able to manage. Like, you have no dollars. <laughs> you know? I mean, he claims that there's several hundred billion stashed in cash. You know, the... The black market, but that like that's already your functioning economy, so it doesn't solve the problem. Yeah. Anyway, that's a whole total side yeah, issue. But but yes. Billionaires, but billionaires like, glomming onto the latest bad like, takes is just a, as if it's it's not it's not as a bad take. It's as if it's something new. Yeah. Like that. Like somehow we're surprised that like this is what the ultimate libertarian free market capitalist likes to hear. You know. Like this guy finally figured it out. He is telling us what has been written. You know, I mean, he's named his dogs after the Economist, for God's sake. <laughs> so, like, his story is well known. And let's not get into all his other younger uh, historical issues of trotting this guy out as the, the ultimate model citizen for for planet Earth. But uh, yeah, I mean, we get it. Like, there is that that element, you know, around the globe and everything. And somehow that, you know, when it comes back to China, uh, there's a lot of people who've just, I mean, I think you got to do this through the market prism. That's how I view it. I really don't care. Like, that's how you have to kind of operate when you're in the market. Uh, yeah, I have like my, like everyone has certain things where like, I guess they'll, more, they'll make moral arguments. I've made these arguments around crypto. My crypto argument really isn't moral. It's just how it's treated. I don't get how it's why it's not treated the same way as like, you know, online sports casinos are treated. Right. So I don't really have I don't really have a problem with people. You know, like I said, I had some fun with NFTs. Uh, I've always liked collectibles. I get people who like collectibles. I get speculation. <laughs> so it's where I have a problem is when you tell me you're updating the financial system. Because that I don't understand. <laughs> You know, so and like and and that you're basically buying politicians to make all this work, and that this is actually making you incredibly wealthy without really delivering that upgrade to the financial system, right? Just from the speculation part of it, or benefiting, correct? From the speculation, yeah. yeah. So if you if you circle back to this whole thing, and I guess the genesis of what we're focused on, for some reason, the last two weeks, and I'll tell you why. This is this is what's kind of what prompted the note and is every market on earth, Daniel, 
is rallying, right? Pretty much. And then there is the Chinese market, which has like accelerated its selling. Okay. And as that has happened, there have been people, you know, there's two, there's two camps of people who, who, who trade and invest. Uh, and you've seen some of these accounts on there, the Schwab, Dali Bali, et cetera. Let's call them the contra traders who like to be opportunistic. You know, there's been, there was a couple of guys actually really had good posts. I think he was one where, you know, like they're willing to buy Alibaba shares or whatever because there's like an implicit relative discount and that's it, right? It works, it works. They're, they have a risk reward construct for their investing, okay? And that's what triggers the, the exposure, you know? But as the Chinese market entered into freefall, right? In the midst of a ramping rally everywhere else, they're now like, oh, well, maybe I just like want the China exposure in general now, you know, from like a macro standpoint, because no market goes to zero, especially the world's second largest economy. And the idea that on a planet of eight and a half billion people, you know, a couple hundred thousand people in the United States are going to dictate what happens to the entire Chinese capital markets is absurd, right? So there's been a consistent flow pressure, but like there's plenty of people who want to trade everything. And if you've traded Frontier, I think you have to have an experience having traded emerging markets and Frontier markets like from a focus as a primary, right? Not as an asset management gimmick, right? Well, I wouldn't say gimmick. It used to actually be like something people really like you, you know, you want to buy this company because it's going to expand into this market, right? I mean, it's it's been the core in the in, in the United States, right? Like, oh, they started out with locations in you know, Philadelphia and then Northeast, and then you know, they're expanding across the country, and then it's like they are opening in Mexico and they're opening in Europe, you know, and then it's Asia, right? Like, that's the story of these MNCs. Uh, and that's also been a game, right, in, in asset management, right? It's like there's better returns. It's adventure capitalism. You know, come there. There was the, the dude who set up a fund to just, like, invest in Iraqi stocks uh, from a Columbia professor. There was a guy who was doing this in Mongolia who had done really well. There was uh, these, like guys I remember who were doing it from like one was like ex uh, 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 military and like two dudes who had been really good in real estate in the US and they started buying up farmland in Sudan right like, there's all kinds of things you come across and then there's just like the basics you know like bricks remember when bricks was the big thing and uh, what was his name O'Neill I thought it was who invented it? No, Jim O'Neill from Goldman Sachs. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So he was like the big guy. I saw him speak in 08. It was uh, uh, Shanghai, Mumbai, Dubai, or goodbye. Right. Right. And, you know, like that was a big theme. Uh, that, of course, drove a lot of commodity stocks. Uh, you know, people are trading Petrobras and Rio Tinto uh, and uh, Vale and all the mining companies and all the energy companies and 
and all the shipping. And then, you know, it shifted to tech, right? And then progressively, now we've entered this kind of nationalization, well, well, sorry, nationalism-driven era and tensions between the U.S. and and China, where what people want to do, their new favorite markets are, one, the reflation of Japan, which had been horrible. Like, remember how many posts you used to read about people talking shit about Japan? Mm-hmm. Japan's finished. Like, I don't know. Oh, the, you know, let me introduce you to the upteenth sucker who thought Japan had bottomed, right? Like another idiot who's, you know, putting his money in Japan. And now you've got these, like, you know, people who are like, hey, you go, remember what you, look how much money you could have made buying Japan? And that's what's happening also with the Korean and Indian markets, right? So you get this, uh, whatever you want to call it, uh, shift. And yeah, the big losing market has been, uh, has been China. And considering China isn't, you know, it's not like it's Egypt or Nigeria or Pakistan, right? Or like the market that like is hot for a nanosecond and then like looks like it's trading, you know, paint dry uh and then it shifts like it's still the world's second largest economy right so when it starts underperforming relative one i mean it's performing really poorly on an absolute basis that's already known look if you bought chinese equities at the end of 2020 it was a horrible investment (laughs) you know you got it wrong you know there's not much else to say you're down 85% in Alibaba, right? And if you've held them for the longest time, you know, the last five years, you probably got it wrong in terms of your understanding of, you know, what they prioritize, you know, how their capital markets function, you know, the government, the relationships, et cetera. Uh, they obviously have problems with how much they invested in infrastructure and the transition and the, the debt at the local levels. and the real estate market. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of deflationary things looming, right? Demographics. Which is what, yeah. Yes, and the demographics too, and the child policy and everything else, right, that are catching up to them. And these are the things that are in focus, but in, in any one of these scenarios, there's policy responses and changes are made and adaptation and, then, and things evolve. And who knows? Maybe the entire government structure changes. You never know, right? Like, what if this government collapsed? And was replaced by a democratically elected government. What if that was to happen? How would people view the Chinese market? Right? Like, I don't know. Uh, Like, there's a lot of things to think about uh, when it comes to it. Or is it actually better that, like, you know, they come at and they start providing the stimulus? And by the way, if they get to a point where they're worried about that, they're likely to provide a lot of stimulus. You know? (laughs) Again. Because right now, I mean, there is an Asian element, particularly with them. They don't want to bail things out, right, culturally. And there's, there's an element here, which I think is being tested, which is this com- command economy capitalism, right? And they now seem to be kind of, I think, understanding that they've got these, like, global national champions. And, like, part of the measuring stick of their success is there share prices and market cap, right? Uh, uh, you know, it's the same way when, like, you know, Trump is talking about how the stock market goes up every day, and then Biden is gloating about how well the stock market's done under him, 
right? Like if you're going to marry yourself to this and it starts not working, I think you just have to decide. You can't just be like, oh, it was nice to have. And it's like a scorecard, but it doesn't matter. Right. So it seems like for them now it matters. Right. And that's where like they've been focusing. They're doing all the usual things like, oh, we don't want short selling or, oh, we need to make this more attractive or, oh, you can't set up a new fund to do this unless you've done a fund uh, that's bought this already. Right. Like they've got busy bees in uh, the capital markets regulator and these guys who are trying to, to address these problems piecemeal, which we know, Daniel, there's one way these problems get solved. <laughs> and it always ends up being, uh, whether it's Japan or the United States, the central bank saying, hello, we're here. You know, Here's some money. <laughs> yes. Quantitative easing. Welcome to the party. Right. So I think that's kind of uh, something where you're now kind of looking at it and you're like, oh, there's a huge opportunity to make money on something like this. Right. This has nothing to do with an individual business or stock picking or anything. Right. So you start to take notice on that. And as you're taking notice on that, like you're reading these people who are talking about, you know, that like the market's uninvestable. I don't believe there's any such thing as an uninvestable market. Right. It's like the whole, per let alone the world's second largest economy, right? And I don't believe you should be making any moral arguments, right? Because isn't that the whole credo of, of the capitalists is that it shouldn't be about diversity and inclusion. It, it shouldn't be about ESG. And if that's the case, you know, it shouldn't be about how you treat, you know, uh, on a humanitarian basis, uh, whatever, uh, some ethnic group you're, you're, you haven't been too kind to because uh, we're perfectly fine with some other country where they do the same exact thing. You know? That's where you get to the Chinese market and you see all the, what people were writing. Uh, and I mean, a couple of those guys, I mean, part of the reason I commented were like soft trolling. Right. And you're just like, come on, can you really, are you really soft trolling this? What about because Go ahead. Well, I, I, where I'm jumping is just, and this ties back to Boeing too, actually. The concept, I, I, I think I know your answer, and it's, but there is, ignore the uninvestable or whatever else, but the whole too hard concept. And I would, with a Boeing, I feel like I can make, I can certainly make backwards looking arguments that's easy, but I can also, to some degree, make forward-looking arguments about Boeing, and we could get into those details or not. But just the idea of, yeah, again, I, I think I know you're the, the counter, but at some point, this factor, that factor, we don't have the visibility on stimulus or central banks, the, the fact that the, the valuation hasn't been a floor, this, that, the other, at some point, I see enough opportunities out there that I'm not going to spend my time thinking about this. I like, where do you, where, when do you get to a too hard and why, why do these not, do you ever get to too hard? And then why does, why doesn't this fall in there for you? Why do you feel that it's still approachable, ignored from the moral, political, whatever perspective, just what makes you still feel comfortable. This is approachable. 
I mean, I don't really think that there is a way of answering that question. Like, I guess you ha- like you have to have some degree of comfortability with what you're involved with to kind of be like, I don't know. Like, I'll tell you an example. Uh, the Spirit Airlines thing. I totally avoided that. And there was comparisons made to it, you know, from a merger ARB standpoint with Twitter. And I was like, but no, that's not really how I saw that. Like, I'm not a merger ARB guy. Like, that's why I thought the Twitter trade wasn't really about that. Right. Like, I didn't like I don't I don't want to be in something where I have to predict whether a judge is going to side with the U.S. government or not. Right. Like the, the there we were just like, this is buyer's remorse. And here's what's happening. And it's the world's richest man. So, like, it's kind of an affront to all capitalism and transactions if it gets to a judge and they were to side with him. Right. And then you use the legal precedent of the judge versus trying to determine whether or not something is antitrust, which is very different, right? And I mean, look, not to oversimplify it, because I think, like, I think you know, people who are doing legal analysis will tell you they spend a lot of time and, like, but like you're analyzing precedent in a similar way to make kind of predictions on 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 where on where the court will end. But sometimes the courts shift politically, right? By like the very nature of the human beings who are sitting there, right? And they find a different way to change their opinion, you know? Uh, yeah, and, and that's and a very, kind of, I like that as a comparison, but merger arb in general, I think if you're not a merger arb person, like it too hard is, it, the problem with merger arb is that sometimes it seems easy and then you get bit in the ass. But yeah, I, I like that as a, as a comparison. Yeah, so like, I mean, the Boeing thing, for example, to me is really is what's happening with it right now is really interesting because, look, if you think that the plug door thing was like a big deal, right, and you believe that it's also tied to Spirit Air Systems, well, they're a big supplier of Airbus's competing plane, right? They make different parts in different places for them as well, right? So if this door in Malaysia, which we either had loose bolts or no bolts or something, right? You know, uh, you know, it hasn't been disclosed yet. Something quality control went wrong with this plug door, okay? Uh, and it was tied to this component supplier who supplies both, okay? If it was, if if this was just a component supplier who just supplied Boeing, you would be like, okay, it's very clear that they suck at this and Airbus is superior. Now the incident implies that, but. I don't think that's true, right? I think that there's a way of looking at what's happened very clearly. I mean, it, without question, Boeing for the last decade plus has made compromises uh, that you know prioritize if they're scrutinized profitability over safety. But that's capitalism for everything. You know, I mean, part of like I, I pointed out, like I went through the you know financial crisis, which is kind of different, but like you had rating agencies and you had bank regulators and you had uh, government changes with Glass-Steagall. You know, everyone who analyzed whatever it was that was the root cause and contributed. And uh, but then there was other examples, which was you know Purdue Pharma and the FDA, and uh, you know the oil industry. Uh, you know, the Department of Interior's, uh, what do you call them, the minerals mining, uh, the guys who were responsible for overseeing uh, the offshore drilling. It was basically a captive regulatory agency. MMS right? is, I think, what you were yes. talking about, which yeah. I, I actually less familiar with, but yeah. 
Yeah, by the end of by the end of the Macanudo BP spill and everything had come out, it was like basically big oil had taken over this thing, you know. Like they were bought and paid for structurally. Uh and like that was kind of a, you know, everybody agreed upon and like that whole agency was like gutted and overhauled, right? Like it's not even called that anymore. The whole thing changed. And like the way it was set up, like, you know, the maximum criminal fine was a hundred thousand dollars a day right like 30 million dollars or whatever a year you know so like you can literally break the law and the laws have been changed in a manner that the punishment you know is inconsequential to big oil of course as we saw that actually also played politically right because bp was not american okay and it turned into you know obama and who was it? I think it was Blair at the time, right? It wasn't Cameron. Uh, it would have been Brown, I think. I think Blair was already out by then. Well, it's 2010, right? Yeah, I think Brown is Brown is oh. there for the crisis. I think Cameron comes in in 11 or 12, I want to say. Or maybe it was Cameron. I don't know. I mean, the bottom line is it was like on TV and their meeting and it was all political, right? Because legally speaking, they didn't have to do anything. You know, and there was, you know, there was American companies that were involved, right? There was Halliburton, obviously Transocean. There was the, uh, the fail safe thing that's supposed to. Uh, I, I don't remember that. Was it Schlumberger or one of those? No, 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 no. It was a very sp- specific company that makes uh, the thing that should have sealed off the well, the emergency. Uh, I don't, I don't remember. To the, I do to think the, it was Cameron, by the way. Cameron, 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 Cameron. Cameron. Yes, oh, that is who well, it both, was. Both Cameron, the company, and Cameron was in charge of... Uh, David Cameron was elected in 2010, so he would have been... Okay, yep. Cameron Cameron, and Cameron. Yeah, there you go. But yeah, I mean, if you go back to the whole history of that, right? And I, 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 I traded that whole thing, right? So... I remember it vividly. I remember, like, you know, I had the background on the legal side. Uh, I knew what Exxon went through with the Valdez spill and how many years that took. And, you know, and at the peak of it, people were just like, all right, it's going to be, it's going to go bankrupt. It's like, how? Like the, like, even if you can prove that like they willfully did this, you know, like they literally tried like on purpose, they committed this crime. Here are the caps, you know, this was basically provided, gifted to the energy industry courtesy of the Bush administration, right? Who is from a family of big oil, right? And you can't lose. Now, they did set up the fund and the diplomatic things were done. And we saw over time how much was paid out out of it. And really the only reason, if you look over time, that BP stock you know, did not recover insanely, right? Because I mean, it does recover significantly. And then it starts going back down is because of the shale industry boom. Right, had nothing really to do with that spill. Right, it was like the entire industry changing, fundamentally speaking. But if you look at that, that was like an agency and 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 the relationship there. And like we come back to this whole uh, situation with with Boeing, and you're like, this really boils down to the relationship with the FAA, right? And like that does not get as much play. But like the the, the way Boeing navigates the FAA and back and forth, that's really what's come up here. I mean, that was the big part 
by the way, of everything that happened with the 737 MAX crashes. I mean, people still forget that, like, you know, Airbus surprised everybody when they announced the, you know, A320 improvement in, in 2010. And, like, Boeing can't lose the narrow body market, you know, for a decade to, to, to Airbus. So, like, they literally were caught flat footed. And I mean, these companies have been getting these planes, you know, essentially certified in an upgrade manner without designing a new plane because a new plane requires you training new pilots, right? Because of the way the regulations work, they can only fly one plane, right? So training is a big cost for the airlines who don't want to pay that. So like a part of the appeal for the marketing to the airlines is like, hey, you know, the max, if you're on the old 737 at Jeek and you shift to the max and you've got the new engines and this and that, it's two and a half hours in an iPad and you're done. And the and the way they were able to deliver that, and remember when they like when they made that progress, right? And they made the announcement, people were like, how did they how did they achieve this? It seemed like, you know, magic that like they're gonna deliver almost a 10% improvement over what Airbus was gonna deliver. And you know, they had to, you know, there's a tweak in the design and, and, you know, you got these bigger engines and you got to move them forward and the things that you had to do. And that created this lift situation, which caused the plane to handle differently, which they addressed with this software solution, right? Which ended up being the whole big problem because the software solution is basically there to say it doesn't handle differently. We don't, we don't need to retrain you because we have a software uh, fix that takes care of it. Of course, they only use one sensor and, it, and you know, those sensors, it turns out, fail like one in every six million versus one in 10 million. And for emerging markets, you know, pilots, it turned out to be an issue. And the first crash, the FAA sides with Boeing. Why do they side with Boeing? Because the whole process of getting Boeing to this point, you know, and maintaining all of this is essentially in complying with what the FAA has created which is these certification guidelines. So the FAA has assessed it and they're like, look, it's actually safe. Like this is part of aviation. You have to take the risk, right? Like there's going to be some failure. Like, and that's where you get into like what is acceptable. Now, the pilots made a huge ruckus. And I don't know if you remember, because I was trading that then actually from a bearish side because Boeing had been just like on, on this unbelievable run. And you're like, come on, how can this not be negative? There were all these like Reddit threads from pilots talking about how bad the software problem is and that like you legitimately need to be retrained for it. Right. And then lo and behold, the Ethiopian flight crashes and we get the recording and it's like literally, you know, an indictment of, of, of this whole process. Right. MCAS comes on, it triggers it. He identifies it. They kill it. They're trying to fight it. And then they're like, oh, God, no, you know, and let's turn it back on. Maybe it'll like it, maybe it'll fix it. Because they couldn't get it out of it. And they're just hoping if they turn the system back on, it would save them and they crash and they die. And then like everyone gets to hear that. And it's like, holy shit. And then it gets grounded everywhere. And then for 18 months. Ironically, COVID happening in that same window kind of negated the ultimate damage, right? Because then the whole industry goes through this kind of pause. It actually helps Boeing. 
on the back end of it. I mean, financially it creates some stress, but like, you know, everybody kind of has that stress, but it also gives them more time. But what is not like, because we sensationalize these things, it's never been safer to fly. You know, look at the United States. I don't know if you remember when I when, like the, the incidents that used to happen versus how rarely anything ever happens anymore in the United, in domestic travel, right? Which is so Boeing dominated that like you actually have to ask yourself, is the scrutiny and the media element too significant here? Because the automotive industry, for example, is not treated in the same way. I mean, all the Tesla bears will point to all the, the, the fires and the incidents, right? With autopilot and all these other things. And that's viewed as like the price of innovation, right? And like here, it's like, well, accountants took over from engineers. And it's like, well, I mean, in an oligopolistic market, right? Like where there's these just windows where uh, there's a huge order period. Like if you miss that, you could be totally you know, gutted competitively, right? So like you're competing against someone and you're competing against a regulatory framework, right? That like is, is part of the apparatus. And you would think there would be more blame assigned to, for example, the airlines, right? Like the airlines are getting this benefit. And when you think about the spirit deal and all these, all the consolidation and everything going on there, right? You're like, the airlines don't want to retrain the pilots. Okay. You know, the airlines don't want to pass this cost on. They can't, or, you know, the, the consumer doesn't want to pay it. Right. Like, I mean, it's always something with respect to like a profit margin and all of this and like, you know, perpetual earnings growth. <laughs> and like, there's a limitation to it in, you know, basic aviation, you know, unless you find the ability to build a plane to take you to the moon. You know, and people sort want to start doing those trips regularly, right? So, I mean, there there is there's obviously a lot more travel going on, and and you know they're squeezing more and more out of it, but like it's always going to require weighing one versus the other, and uh, I mean, as safety is is not an independent variable, we like to think of it as, hey, let's make this the safest, but well, then like you know, you would probably deliver planes at 10% of the rate, you know, you could have a small army of them. I mean, you, you want to go back to the whole thing. It's right. Like there's the old uh, Milton Friedman when, when he's in Asia and uh, he's, he's sitting with some communist party members and, and he's like, what's that over there? And uh, he's like, oh, they're building a bridge and doing this. And, you know, he's like, look, you guys should get some heavy capital equipment and you could get this done really faster. And they're like, you know, uh, with all due respect, uh, Mr. Friedman, Dr. Friedman, you know, that's the jobs program, right? And he's like, oh, well, in that case, give them spoons. You know, when you view it that way, it's like you could have an army of people checking and doing reinspection and recertification. And, you know, there's countries where, you know, the amount of paperwork people go through is ridiculous. It reminds me of the, what is it? The Vogons in uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. One of the books I need to read. Yeah. Yeah. Like can't it, speak it's basically, that. it's the most bureaucratic administration overseeing the, the galaxy. Like everything, like they accidentally, part of the whole 
book is like it starts off with them like ex- accidentally demolishing Earth because somebody didn't file the paperwork. <laughs> you know, or it's like it's like literally like doing road work that kind of triggers everything. But yeah, I mean, when you look at the the, the when you come back to Boeing, nobody's really talking tr- trash about the airlines and like their incentives. And nobody's talking trash about like the FAA has kind of the structure that has to balance, you know, multiple interests. Right. So as of right now, the FAA is like, you know, has grounded these planes and they're going through the process and everyone's like, you know, this is so embarrassing for them and whatever. And it's like, well, if it's the same supplier, it's the same thing. Like this shouldn't be treated differently. Right. It should not be treated differently based on what just recently happened. And saying that there's like a, just this whole culture of failure, like getting planes that are say they are the most motivated company on earth, right? To make sure that they don't have planes failing for quality control. <laughs> you know, like wow. it's a core part of it's a core part of their business, right? So like there's an acceptable loss rate, right? That is factored into everything, and it's like, look, we could make this thing. Like, there is, is there going to be something that's going to go through here that's not a perfect part that is more likely to fail in time? And is there more redundancies that can be added, right, that could address that? And what is the cost of that? Like, that's always going on in, in factoring this out, right? Like, you could spend all the time trying to make all this shit perfect and some human error or some whatever is going to cause the problem down the road, right? Uh, that, like would have had nothing to do with you. So when you kind of look at it and you see what's happened, I mean, what happened with MCAS was a structural thing, right? Like everybody knew what was going on here. The airlines should have been looking at it and saying, hey, we need to put this many hours to retrain our pilots, but the airlines wouldn't do it because the regulators aren't demanding it, right? And they don't want to take pilots off the planes, you know, and cost them money while they're retraining them you know, to deal with this software system. And like, and remember, it's, it's like, in this case, we're talking about a sensor failure as well. So like they had, they ended up going with, you know, more than one sense, more than one sensor to address the fact that potentially the sensor sends the wrong signal, right? So you had two things here. One, how do you disable this thing instantaneously and take it and take it over, right? For the pilot who now knows how to deal with it. You know, then two, like, how do you make it so that you don't have to do that? And it doesn't trigger this risky situation, which which occurred in those two crashes. Right. And that really goes back to you could basically say the whole problem really was that they cut corners on the sensors. Right. And they used two from the start. You know, maybe neither of those planes crash. Right. So, like, what's the cost benefit analysis of that? I remember the FAA had concluded over 30 years they would have 15 crashes because of the MCAS system. And that was like determined, you know, as acceptable. Right? When they did the 2018 report, you know, and that comes out later. So, I mean, you know, whatever. Uh, I just think the current situation is actually like much more typical airline. And like, not like, here's how certification works. Here's how you have to race to catch Airbus, you know? And if Airbus is going to do this, then like, well, you can't start from scratch. You got to cut the time of development. And 
you know, that's what really ended up happening in all of this. And now you kind of look at this and it's like, well, the part came from Malaysia. You know, everyone's going through this. Everyone's so focused on this. But then like the, the same supplier, you know, does multiple parts around the world for, for Airbus's planes. So like, does this all flip just because one day, unfortunately, Airbus has an issue and it hasn't caught any press? Like I basically say, is Airbus that much safer, really? And it's currently perceived, right? And I mean, you know, it's hard to say without any proof, but like they're both operating kind of under the same framework competitively. So yeah, there's a cultural difference, let's just say, with the, with this French company versus American historically, but same limitations. So, yeah, you kind of look at it and you say, were the decisions that Boeing made for the long-term position Boeing is currently in the right decisions, despite the fact that, unfortunately, people died? And that's aviation. And that's aviation in, 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 in a capitalistic industry? Well, I guess the answer is maybe yes. And that like now when you look at when you now when you look at the stock and you say, once enough people digest enough of this and realize how safe aviation has been, and that Boeing is like if I'm a Boeing customer, I'm more likely to feel even more comfortable, right? <laughs> that they're going to have to like deliver everything that they need to deliver to me with like double and triple checking it. Like that basically means like Boeing's backlog continues to be secure. And like you should be kind of looking at it from a standpoint of, well, is this the type of thing that's going to cause customers to go away from them? And I don't see that at all, right? Like I, I would say the initial confusion around the Max opened that door, and then like as we saw what like how that whole thing played out and what was going on there, like it's it's more about the regulators and the airlines than necessarily some like really poor. Boeing situation. Now you've seen internally, I mean, you've watched the documentary. We know that, that, that like there's internal things that were going on, which were the trend, but that's what being a profit oriented machine is about, right? Like that tension's always going to exist in these companies. Ooh, and like man. these guys definitely have, these guys have paid the price for it without question. Like they don't get to they don't get to like go show up in Congress and be like, listen, we have shareholders and we have to deliver earnings growth for forever. You know? What I think is the the art both the bullish case for Boeing writ large and what you would argue, I I get your point about the regulators, the sort of infrastructure of the whole system around them, but the fact that it is an oligopoly or a duopoly, essentially, on the one hand means, of course, their customers are going to be stuck with them because the Airbus can't build so many planes to cover all the demand. And even if it does, then what happens if Airbus ever has a problem? Then all, you know, you do need at least an option, but then there's nowhere else to go, really. Like there's no other player on this scale that you can talk to. And so, it does. It's a that's the strength of Boeing's position. I mean, because you know, Boeing is a company. They've I was looking. They've lost money five years in a row. 
And you can, uh, I think they're, they're targeting getting back to 10 billion cash flow by 2025 or 2026. Their enterprise value is something like 170,000, 100, yeah, just under 170 yeah, I mean like billion. 160, 170 billion again. Yeah. So, okay, you know, you start to do on a market cap basis, you're talking about 13 times that free cash flow estimate. They used to make more. So it's not a crazy number. So it's that's the whole logic there. And, and it is sort of to, again, without getting into how grave or not grave the current situation is. Boeing is sort of too big to fail in in the sense of like they have to. There's a lot of the economy that relies on air travel, and they have they are the there with Airbus, and so whether the I would I would be more worried about things with them with uh, if the Chinese competition gets there. Yeah, and I I remember right. I, I and did, I am right now about this plug door and and the carryover from. Uh, you know, the dynamic between them and Airbus in this ecosystem of these two against each other and this and the the you know the engine manufacturers and and part suppliers that they both work with. Yeah, and I, I when we back in my old podcast, I did we did three podcasts about Boeing right when the second Max crash happened. And we talked to a guy from Airline Weekly and we talked to my co-host talked to a pilot to get the pilot experience. And then we just talked about ourselves, but I think the China competition came up or maybe you and I have talked about, I can't remember. We've talked about China competition and the sense I got is it's one of those things that's always five or 10 years away and doesn't seem to be closing the gap to where, to where that's a real threat to the duopoly. But yeah, your, your point I think is the, that is the correct long-term risk beyond perennial delays and perennial fines, regu- any regulatory stress, that's that's the real risk for Boeing. The question for me, the reason I don't own Boeing, I guess, is I still just sort of think you can still find value out there in the travel space without needing to go to Boeing. But I don't know. It's just a, that's the interesting dynamic there. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, there's uh, that's uh, there's many ways to skin a cat when you start dealing with these types of investments. Where you're like, what is lower risk? What has better risk reward upside? What is you know going to be out of favor now? But like you said, too big to fail. And uh, I look back on it. I mean, like for me, that's what Boeing has been, right? Like, but it's it's been back and forth. Uh, or from what was like an open up trade to, as you said, like, you know, it was just turning into this kind of, uh, sky is clear. Mm-hmm. And now you had this kind of relapse, uh, where, you know, we went from people being like, man, you could have bought this thing for this and doubled your money. So why are you doing all this other stuff? <laughs> right. Right. To people like, Oh, look at all the problems here. Uh, and like you've seen the mix of analyst commentary, it's like, wow, this is going to get in the way, and you know uh, they're going to lose market share, significant market share to Airbus, and then that's where like you have to get into the saying, well, if you're a customer of them, is that actually the case? Because they've actually been shouldering a lot of the burden of what the customers are trying to avoid, right? 
And then the second thing is, is Airbus that much safer, right? Are like, are these things really as systemic as it seems? And like both from like the way the regulatory relationship works and like from Boeing's internal, you know, quality control and the, and the trade-offs that they've been making, you know, for the last, whatever you want to call it, uh, uh, decade to boost earnings growth, right? Because it's it's hard to grow earnings, like like you said, too big to fail. But at the same time, like predictable businesses like this, you know, it's hard to deliver double digit earnings growth for forever. So, like, there's windows where things happen uh, that you know to to get there, like they have to they have to constantly find new ways to do more with less, and that's not what you want. Like in, in industries like where safety is a big deal, right? But you're also, but like for companies like that, you're also risking the whole business if you go too far off the top. And that's why there's these, that's why these regulatory bodies exist, right? I mean, if you look, I mean, the, the, the perfect example of the total extreme, I think, right? Because you can't really like the MMS thing, like with, with the BP spill, I don't really think is as unique as I really think. I think the one that really stands out is Purdue Pharma and OxyContin. Like you got this like one guy who they hammer away at to get this designation that, you know, this class two narcotic is less addictive and thus uniquely <laughs> positioned to treat serious pain. And it's a whole agency, but it really boiled down to over time getting one person to agree with them. And they did what, like, clearly they did whatever it took to get him there. And he ends up working for them, you know, 18 months later, is it? After the approval. And it's not like anyone's out here saying the FDA is corrupt, right? Well, like, I mean, like you can kind of you can kind of go back and say, well, maybe there should be four people at the FDA responsible for that, right? But then if you do that, okay, there's going to be the people who say you need to drain the swamp. Yeah, you know, like what is why is the why do we have why do we need four people at the FDA to do this? Well, because one can be potentially bought, you know, and if one can be bought, whatever. But like capitalism seems to solve this problem in that eventually. You know, all the rules that were put in place that like supposedly protected the, the Purdue family from, you know, unlimited liability, you know, were basically ripped up. <laughs> right. Like there's that whole there's that whole it shocks the conscience so much. Right. And like 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 you could say, like, I don't know, on the Richter scale, like somewhere along the lines, like, you know, Boeing climbed up that a little bit. Like you haven't had enough people being like, you know what, this is aviation. And if you look at it in the totality, they've done their job and they have to remain competitive. And if you're going to have to remain competitive, like safety is a variable in the process, right? It is not the be all end all. So, uh, and like that, I don't think it's been as much here. Like, yeah, I haven't had the ardent supporters. I remember Captain Twilio and I went back and forth on like, you know, buybacks, 
right? Like the, remember when we were talking bailouts of the airlines and, and, and the cruise lines and it's like, well, why would you bail out? Like they should have kept cash for a rainy day. And it's like, you would never invest in these businesses if the rainy day they were planning for was the pandemic, you know? You know, is there going to be like a mandated uh, buffer that they all should hold? If in that case, everything will get a, a deserve a lower multiple. And like, these are the things that occur in capitalism because it's like, should you like have this? And, you know, his argument was like, well, what, like, what were they supposed to do? Like, in, like invest in pharmaceutical companies? You know? So like, you know, just in case a pandemic hits, they, they put enough money into pharmaceutical companies so that, that we'll have a vaccine, <laughs> you know, or are they supposed to do buybacks? Uh, because like there's a common carrier element to the types of businesses they do. Now, of course, the cruise lines got more shit, right? Because they don't pay taxes and flags of convenience and, you know, maritime law. And they don't have the, the labor union issues that the, the U.S. airlines deal with and all that other stuff, right? And then you've got these airlines that compete against other airlines that have government subsidies. And, you know, uh, we can go on and on and on about the... Right. You know, yeah, we don't need to worry. revisit that whole that right. topic. Right. But, so, like, it, it's clear that it's yeah. There's, it's not. And there have been dumber takes on Boeing as we, we we've avoided bringing up the DEI responsibility, supposed responsibility. I mean, there's all these ways to. Well, pay. I mean, these like these things come into it too, right? Like, if these become costs, right, that these companies are dealing with, there's trade offs there. That uh, again, like to satisfy shareholders, satisfy that, and you know, deliver the level of safety, you know, let's say above and beyond uh, what the bare minimum might be uh, to deliver your, your your shareholder targets, right? I mean, again, like I said, they have an incentive on the safety because it's a core part of their whole business model, right? So. Like you can't sit here and say, "Oh, the accountants are running it, not the engineers." It's like, well, like the accountants aren't stupid. Uh, at the management level, they do know that the whole company goes down uh, if, like, they really, really cut corners, right? And then there's the whole point of, unlike the FDA, right, with this one guy, you know, uh, in the Purdue case, there's an entire agency that's dedicated to this. Right. So like they're in the way. And then there are airlines who are dedicated to this and people every day servicing planes who are dedicated to this. Right. So like there, there's a lot of li li moving parts, I think, that, that, that factor into the equation that like, you know, doesn't get the play that it gets. And then, yeah, we do change the rules, you know, like we did within the Purdue case where. Like you're not gonna like. I mean, in the Purdue case, you've seen like they probably should have just addressed this way earlier, uh, but they were comfortable with their power that they influenced the right people and they got the laws and the books to protect themselves, right? And those laws haven't mattered because the rules were changed, essentially because everybody like whatever you want to call it like. Uh, um, uh, you know, heads have been demanded by the public because of how bad this was over time. And can you really blame them for everything that happened over time? I mean, I think that's going a bit far, right? Like, again, 
you got to blame all the agencies, the whole system that wasn't able to step in and and address this fast enough before it became, let's call it a, an epidemic, right? Uh, it's not just, you know, Purdue Pharma and their label and the salespeople who are really aggressive selling the drug to doctors. I mean, as you said, as you've seen in this example, if if doctors basically determined that this is getting their patients addicted, they would not prescribe it at all. But like, as you've seen, like, you know, the doctors are relying on the FDA and the, even the ones who maybe even know better. It's hard to overcome the incentives financially that the others are are, are susceptible to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it makes you, it leads us probably astray from the nuts and bolts stock market to think about the broader capitalistic. Yeah. I mean, look, if you got, like, my general take on Boeing going back to the simplest is that we're probably going to get to a scenario here with the plug door. Like if, if this thing is not treated as, you know, like this is part of aviation and it's popped up here and it's not systemic, I'll be very surprised. I mean, knock on wood, you know, this went the way it did and like, you know, people respond and things are addressed and like, that's just the way it goes. Right. I think if you, I think if everybody agrees, uh, the big mess with the MCAS situation, and by the way, like you can see that this configuration is a small percentage of the backlog and, and whatnot. If you go back to the MCAS situation, it's like the FAA was defending their integrity by not grounding it. That's what really, like, I, I don't think gets as much play in the whole situation. Because again, like, they play an integral component in establishing the framework that Boeing operates under, but that Boeing and Airbus operate under. I think that's the thing that people, you know, forget about here. So, like, I mean, again, like, they have to make themselves look like they haven't been compromised and uh, are actually doing their jobs, you know? Because uh, they're the ones who have to certify the plane. Uh, and uh, they're the ones who go. And, and I, again, also, I feel like there's a part where, where it comes to the airlines where like people forget that like they're, they're probably, they probably have people doing the calculations and being like, 100%, we should continue to buy Boeing planes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, people are not being forced, forced to this. Hopefully all like done with the best information and so on. You know, the point where they, they don't buy them, it's when someone else has made something that's better and cheaper. And if it's better and cheaper, you pretty much have to believe that uh, safety trade-offs are, are embedded in there somewhere. That's like the efficient market thesis of airplanes right yeah. there basically there's no better way all right well let's let's uh i think we can land that land the runway we'll get back on the runway there it's a lot of a lot of stuff to chew on so good stuff akram thanks for your time on this and uh we'll see no thanks thanks uh for your time on this i mean it's uh always it's always interesting uh to think about these things I mean, uh, capitalism is what it is, right? You don't like you don't want to start preaching 
uh, at the risk of being a hypocrite. <laughs> there's always there's a, the, no country's perfect, no market's perfect, and it's really hard to fit morality into investing. Just as we've seen, it's really hard to fit, you know, uh, diversity and inclusion and, and social things into the contracts into it as well. Uh, but these are the, these are the built intentions of the system, which we will be, you know, as they say, we are doomed to de deal with this for forever. The worst system, except for all the other ones, as, yeah. they, as they put it. So, all right. Good stuff. All right. Later. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to The Razor's Edge. Subscribe to this wherever you get your podcasts. Hit us up on Twitter at, at Daniel Shortman and at Akram's Razor with suggestions, requests, or anything else. We aim to publish this every Tuesday morning and love to hear from you. If you can share this with a friend or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, we'd really be grateful, as that will help the podcast grow and improve. This has been a Shortman Studios production. Our theme song is Move On by Soquel. Thank you for listening and see you next week.